I have an uncle who was a senior pastor in a missionary church for about 30 years, and uh, he recently retired. He's about 60 years old. He's, he dresses well. He's, he's a well-read man. His wardrobe consists mainly of cardigans and collared shirts and ties and things. And he retired, and a few months ago, he told me that he now works as a public bus driver in downtown Detroit. And in the afternoon, when it's not busy, a lot of the bus drivers go to the break room, and they play pool, and they sit around, and they talk about nothing, and they waste time. And my Uncle Mike, he, he seems so different to them, not, not only because he's one of the only white people there, and he dresses different, but he's usually reading a big, thick book or working on his laptop, he just, he just seems to live a life that's foreign to most of the people there. And when he first arrived on what he calls his day job, a lot of those guys there, they asked him, are you an undercover boss? <laughs> and he said, no, you know, I just need a, I just need a paycheck just like you. And, and he told me last Thanksgiving that he's making friends and, you know, he, he likes the people he works with and they like him. And, you know, he's not, he's not that different after all from from these people, and even though he looks like he would be. Now, when Jesus was on earth, it was quite the opposite. He looked like your average Jew. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. He was a working class person, a carpenter. For most of his life, people were familiar with his family, his mother, his brothers, his sisters. But he was not what people expected. He was an undercover Messiah. And, and the people who spent time with him, they were always amazed at the things that he would say and the things that he would do. Even his own disciples who were with him every day and every night for three full years were always asking the question, who is this? Who is this? Even after his resurrection, he was, he was full of surprises. Even when they thought they knew him, he would just say or do something that would take their breath away. And one of my favorite take your breath away stories is from Mark chapter 4 and 5, the end of Mark 4 and the beginning of Mark 5. It's, it's a story that a lot of us have read and heard before, but my hope is that when we hear it this time, our eyes will be opened to the power and the goodness of our Lord Jesus. You know, there's a reason why the Bible is not just a list of propositional statements, but most of it is written in story form. And that's because stories have a way of revealing truth that other forms of communication cannot, especially when it's stories about people. And this story especially can help us see Jesus in a way that can affect our hearts and not just our minds. So you can follow along if you want, in, in Mark chapter 4 and 5. But what I would suggest is, I'm going to tell the story, suggest that you just sit back and listen and enjoy. So, Jesus had had a very busy day. He was, he was teaching people by the Sea of Galilee, which was actually really like a large lake. And a huge crowd, Mark calls it many crowds, of people had, had come to see him, thousands upon thousands of people from all over the country, even from down south in Judea, had walked there to see him and to hear him. And some of them had walked for, for just miles and miles. 
And if you can just picture this, he's standing by the lake, and there are thousands of people that are trying to reach out and touch him so that they can be healed. You know, as an introvert, that's like a nightmare. Thousands of people reaching out to touch you and, you know, um, at the same time. And so what Jesus did is he, he got in a boat and he pushed it a little way from shore and he taught them many things from the boat until, until it started to get dark. And when it was getting dark and he'd finished teaching, the people still didn't leave. And so Jesus told his disciples, let's just go to the other side of the lake. So without getting any extra clothes, without getting any extra food, they took off from where they were. And you know what? Many people got in boats and they followed them. Almost the the exact moment they took off, Jesus got into the back and he laid down and he fell asleep. He was exhausted. The lake was only about 13 miles across, which, you know, it would have taken Peter and Peter's boat would have taken about two hours to get from one side of the lake to the other. But fishermen were careful at night not to go too far because the Sea of Galilee, even though it wasn't very big, it could produce just massive storms with no warning. It still does to this day. Storms will fall suddenly and violently from Mount Hermon down into the Jordan Valley and then down into the water, which is 682 feet below sea level. And the hot air at that depth just draws the storm down with sudden power. The waves can get huge on this little lake. And when they were stuck helplessly in the middle of the lake and Jesus is asleep, one of these storms called the lilaps, it's kind of like a hurricane-like storm, it hits them suddenly. And before they knew it, water was filling the boat and the waves were lapping over the side. And some of the disciples, I mean... Some of them were probably, you know, working the rigging, trying to save the equipment, but the other ones went right to Jesus. And, and amazingly, you know the story, amazingly, Jesus was still fast asleep. But you know what? He was soaked. How is he sleeping when he's getting rained on, when water is, you know, floating into the boat? You know, how is he still asleep? And the, the boat was rocking violently. The wind was deafening. His disciples were shouting in his ear. They couldn't believe that he was still asleep. The disciples shook him until he got up and they yelled over the gale of the wind, don't you even care if we die? Now when you translate it like that, it sounds like they're questioning whether Jesus actually cares about them. But I I think you could translate it better by saying, aren't you even worried that we're all about to die? You know, the peacefulness of his face while he slept was at complete odds with the situation. And he, he, he probably just seemed slow and relaxed as he got up from his nap. One of the things about Jesus that's unique is that he's always calm when others are full of anxiety. He's never infected by the fears of other men. And in this case, when his disciples asked if he was worried about dying, he clearly clearly was not. He clearly was not. He knew that his heavenly father was not going to let him die in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. He knew. He knew that he was not going to die before his time had come. 
And that's a lesson that we should learn too. No one dies before their time. Our lives are completely in God's hands. So why worry? You know, when I was reading over my sermon this morning, I read that line, I said, is that true? Why worry? What if you jump out of an airplane or something crazy like that? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But no, you know, thinking about it and more seriously, yes. Even when it seems to us that people die too early, our lives, our times are in his hands. So after getting up, and I'm imagining it in my head that he gets up slowly, he looks towards the sky, the waves in the sky, and he said in a loud voice, Peace, be still. Mark says that he rebuked the waves. Rebuke is not a word that we use very often, you know, at least nowadays. It means, you know, to scold or to reprimand somebody. It's like, I imagine it like you get called into the boss's office and you have to sit there while he tells you all the things that you're doing wrong and how you need to shape up. Now, Jesus stands up and he gives the wind and the waves a talking to. He puts nature in its place. He calls it down to his office and he rebukes it. And nature shapes up. Nature does what he says. The wind dies down, the waves flatten out almost immediately until it's completely calm. Can you imagine being there on the boat as the thunderous wind suddenly diminished to nothing? Suddenly. And the waves quickly ebbed to a nearly flat surface. A second ago, you couldn't hear yourself yell. And now, you could hear a pin drop. In those few seconds of just absolute calm, my guess is is that the words of the Psalms that the disciples knew so well because they sang them every Sabbath day in synagogue, that those words of those psalms came to their, to their minds, and they remembered Psalm 107, 29. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Maybe they remembered Psalm 89, 9. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Or maybe they remembered Psalm 93, 3 and 4. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. But mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. It was almost like a nightmare that passed as quickly as it came. And even though the storm had died down, the chaos of the storm was still raging inside of them. And their hearts were beating like drums. And you know what? Jesus looked at them in the eyes and he rebuked them just as simply as he had rebuked the wind and the waves. He said, why are you so afraid? You know, that's not the normal word for fear in Greek. It means something more like, Why are you being such cowards? Then he adds, do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? You know, obviously, these 12 men had faith. They had had believed in Jesus. They were following him. They were his closest friends and his servants. 
They had seen him heal multitudes of people. They had, they had witnessed his astounding wisdom. But they still had no idea who they were dealing with. Even after all that time, they had faith, but their faith didn't match up with the greatness of their Lord. Now, I want to say this. Our faith is in a person, Jesus. It's not in a religion. It's not in a dogma. But what if we don't know the person as well as we think we do? If our faith is lacking when storms hit in our lives, it shows that our understanding is lacking too. Our faith doesn't match up with the greatness of our Lord. You know, it's interesting. When the storm was raging, we can assume that the disciples were terrified, right? They were, they were panicked. They went and got Jesus right away. But Mark doesn't actually tell us that they were afraid. But now that the storm is done, and this great calm has come, and they can see Jesus by the dim evening light, now Mark tells us that they were overcome with fear. The text literally says the disciples were fearing a great fear. If you want to emphasize something in Greek, you can just say the same word twice. They were really afraid. But why would they be afraid now? The storm was done. The storm was over. It was calm. They were afraid because they realized that a force more powerful than a hurricane was standing in the boat talking to them. They were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of their master and their friend. They looked at each other with big eyes and they said, who is this? They thought they knew, but they didn't. The Greek actually has an important word that's left untranslated here in our English. Um, They say, who then is this? There's no one, not even Moses, not even Elijah, that could do something like this. Even the wind and even the waves obey him when he speaks. Who then could this be? other than God and human flesh. It was probably fully dark, middle of the night, when they had unflooded the boat and they finally got to the other side of the lake. And they came to a region called the Gerasenes, which was mainly populated by Gentiles, but it had a lot of Jewish influence. And what they would do there, where they would sleep for the night, the disciples probably had no idea, you know? It was against Jewish custom for a Jew to even enter into a Gentile's house. And so I'm fairly certain that they hadn't come to this region much before, and they probably felt like they were away from their own kind. They didn't know what Jesus was going to do with them. And when they'd finally docked and they came ashore, another terror came immediately to meet them. At first, it was kind of hard to make out what the loud shrieking noise was. And all they could see was was this shadow from the lamps that were lit on the dock. But the shadow grew quickly, and they realized that it was a man. He was large, he was powerful, and he was wild. Much like the hurricane and the shape of a man. And he was completely naked. And he didn't just amble over to Jesus. He ran at him full speed like a wild charging bull probably completely on instinct. But then somehow 
he seemed to recognize Jesus. Probably not by his physical appearance, but by spiritual power. And when Jesus spoke, the wild man, he fell to his knees at Jesus' feet in a posture of unintentional worship. And just like Jesus had brought the sea under control with a word, the man was subdued and humbled to the ground. And he was no longer able to pose a threat. Now, I've heard stories of people who take speed and other drugs that increase their adrenaline so much that they're nearly impossible to subdue. You know, even when close to 10 policemen are trying to bring them down. And I imagine that this was something comparable. But the man was full of demons, not drugs. And the demons were fueling his rage. The man was a living ghost story to the people who lived in the garrisons. He dwelt among the tombs. He attacked anyone that went by. I don't like to think where he came by his food. And at night he would howl with this mixture of pain and anger and he was constantly cutting himself with rocks and stones. And multiple times, groups of men would come down from the village and they would come out in force and bind him with shackles and chains. But he would tear them off of his hands and crush the irons on his feet and he barely even felt the physical pain because of the torment that was going on inside of him. Everyone feared him. Everyone avoided him now. But all the disciples knew was that this huge horror of a man was now shaking with fear and with terror at the feet of Jesus. This man was afraid of Jesus. Just like the storm blew with a great noise, and the disciples feared a great fear. This man shouted out in a great voice that was filled with terror. And he said, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And that man knew that despite his unmatched physical strength, despite his demonic power, he was no match for Jesus' spiritual dominance. One of the things that people in Jesus' day were familiar with was magic. And many people in other countries today are, are familiar with it too. The reason why magic is wrong, as I understand it, is that it's spiritual and it's religious at its core. It calls on spirits that are other than God to manipulate the physical and spiritual world to their advantage. And what's interesting here is that the man was trying to use a magic spell to protect himself from Jesus. Something that doesn't come across very well if, if you're not familiar with the culture. But in ancient magic, higher spirits would be invoked to drive out lower spirits. And the demons here appeal to the only one who's higher than Jesus, his father, to keep Jesus from driving them out. It says something like, I adjure you by God. That kind of language, it invokes a curse if Jesus doesn't comply. Phrases like, I adjure you, or I know who you are, appear in these kind of ancient exorcism texts to, to, to protect oneself or to bind a spiritual opponent. What's amazing about Jesus is that he never needed to resort to magic to get rid of demons. He, calls, he doesn't call on any other name or cast any spell he exercised demons by his own authority. 
He didn't need to use anyone else's power. The demon's attempt to manipulate Jesus to bind him, it fails miserably. You know, even the demons didn't know who they were dealing with. Jesus asked the man, what is your name? And it was the demons who answered. In this disturbing voice, they replied, Legion, for we are many. A legion was a military term for a large group of men. There were 6,862 men in a legion. This man had lost control, and even, even of his own mind and his own voice, and now the legion of demons was speaking for him. But I want to make this clear. You know, there are a lot of horror movies being made in our day and age, in our culture. Movies that are made to invoke fear and, and, and inspire us to be afraid of evil spirits. But you know what? Legion was the one who was shaking in fear of Jesus. Jesus was standing above him, radiating with power and authority, and he was trapped on the ground, trembling. The demons begged Jesus not to cast them out into exile, not to torture them. You know, it's interesting. It is not like Jesus to torture anyone, even demons. And and the crowd, you know, there's a crowd of 2,000 pigs that were on a hill next to them, and the demons begged to go into them, probably because an unclean animal is a good place to go for an unclean spirit. And Jesus granted the request. The demons immediately entered into the pigs, and the pigs went wild and ran headlong right off the cliff into the sea. There were people who were guarding the pigs, and apparently they were close enough to see and hear all that had happened between Jesus and the demonized man. And they went and they reported it in the town and all around the countryside, and it seems like early in the morning all the people came out to investigate. And they were amazed at what they saw. The man who had terrorized their village for so long was dressed and in his right mind and sitting calmly at Jesus' feet. And again, the people were terrified, but they were no longer terrified of the demonized man. They were afraid of Jesus. They begged him to leave. The man who had been demonized, on the other hand, he begged Jesus to go with him. And Jesus didn't let him go. He said, go to your own hometown and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. Even that man was saved by the power and the mercy of Jesus. There are two things that I think we should take note of about this story. The first one is this. Jesus is a far stronger force than any demon or any storm. And if you've given your life to follow Jesus, his spirit lives in you. There's a verse in 1 John 4, verse 4, that says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. There is nothing, physical or spiritual, that should induce fear because we have the Almighty One on our side. Fear is not fitting for the follower of Jesus, except, of course, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. 
The second thing is this. Jesus' power inspired fear. More fear than hurricanes, more fear than demon-possessed men. But it also inspired peace. You know, Jesus, he brought peace and stillness to nature. He brought calm collection to this man who was once full of demons. Jesus is the Lord of peace, as Paul calls him at the end of 2 Thessalonians. And when you trust in him, you realize that everything is going to be okay. That you're going to be okay. You're going to be more than okay. You realize that he has control when everything seems to be spinning out of control. So many times we struggle to save ourselves, to make our situation perfect. And then chaos overwhelms us. But it's Jesus who has the authority and the power. And we simply need to trust in him. We need to rest in him. He himself is our peace. Let's pray together. Lord, would you help our faith to match up with your greatness? Would you help us not to try to save ourselves, but to trust in you? You are full of power, but you're also full of compassion and mercy. Help us to realize that you are with us always to the very end of the age. Amen.